Welcome to the Toadstone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is Dr. Jerry Toner, Fellow and Director of Studies at Churchill College, Cambridge. Dr. Toner, welcome to the program. It's a great pleasure to be here. Oh, pleasure, pleasure to have you as well. So you've written a whole series of books bringing aspects of life in ancient Rome to a popular audience, um, some of which I've had the pleasure of reading. But I want to talk today about just one of these books, How to Manage Your Slaves. This is a survey of Roman slavery um, written in the persona um, of a fictional Roman aristocrat, Marcus Sidonius Falks. Can you tell us a bit about uh, Marcus Sidonius Falks and about how adopting this persona has helped you explain this very large and complex topic? Yes, well, obviously, as you say, he's an aristocrat. So he is a rich, middle-aged Roman male uh, and is exactly the kind of Roman who owned a lot of slaves. Uh, and also, he is exactly the kind of Roman who provides so many of our sources. Uh, so in a way, I wanted to uh, create a character who encapsulated the kind of sources that we have, uh, but also represents the kind of problems that we have as ancient historians. You know, how do we read these sources? How do we uh, get around the kind of bias that they have? Because they are all from that one narrow top end of, of Roman society. And so he is meant to be a, a metaphor, if you like, for what it's like to actually try and do Roman history. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know you've read actually a couple of other books um, under this persona, so it must have been very useful to kind of think through the sources, um, you know, through his name. Um, yes, I think one of the problems with ancient sources, as, as you know very well, is that they're often very difficult to interpret that uh, they might be just obscure or they're difficult legal texts or they are in a religious context. And for the, for the non-expert who is trying to access these, that can make it very difficult. And so I, what I wanted to do was through this character, make them more accessible, uh, run them into more easily read prose uh, so that you know the non-expert can get a sense of what it's like to be, uh, be in, in, in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. You open the book with this uh, scene-setting anecdote in which uh, Falks is about to have a slave's legs broken for a minor offense, but he's stopped by a barbarian guest who comes from a society without slavery. This is a nice way of pointing up the vast difference in perspective, I think, between a Roman aristocrat and a modern reader who comes, of course, from a society without slavery. And so I think at some level it's hard for us, even those of us who do ancient history professionally, to really inhabit the moral universe of the Romans, you know, a society in which it's totally normal to have a slave's leg broken for being insubordinate or impertinent. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, what was the hardest part about trying to think, or at least write, uh, like Falks, this Roman aristocrat? Well, as you say, for us, slavery is completely a moral issue. Uh, it's illegal in every country in the world today. I mean, none of us would ever contemplate what it's like to uh, own slaves. Uh, and yet, in the Roman world, it's completely normal. Uh, it is just seen as being completely required for any kind of decent standard of living. And they, they view slaves really as we would view kind of domestic appliances, like a fridge or something like that. Um, so what I was wanting to do was not really think like a Roman, it's more, more retelling like a Roman, using the sources that are from, from the mouths of Romans themselves and putting them into a coherent narrative that allows us to kind of 
access that type of that type of thinking. And what I really wanted to do was make it give people a real sense of just how normal it was uh, that they just do not see slavery as is in any way problematic. And I think, again, for us, it's very easy to look back at the Roman world and think that they are, in some sense, you know, like us, that they are, that they're just us in togas. Uh, but I think what slavery in particular is an institution that really shows that they are fundamentally different in, in many ways. Oh, absolutely. Um I want to touch upon um, you know, this, this vast, massive evidence that we have for Roman slavery, which you mentioned before already. You know, things from legal texts to you know more literary authors to inscriptions, even material evidence. You know, this enormous panoply of evidence that's kind of hard to wrap your arms around. Um, which of these sources did you find most useful in reconstructing your picture of Roman slavery for a general reader? Yes, that's a good question. There are there are three agricultural manuals uh, which are written by Cato, Columella, and Varro, and they were really manuals that taught you how to run a country estate. Uh, so that in, involved a lot of managing slaves, you know, getting your slaves to work as a team, to work productively, uh, as a way of of making your estates uh, profitable uh, and productive. So they were particularly useful for those kind of aspects of the book, you know, dealing with practical aspects of uh, slave uh, management, particularly in the agricultural setting. Um, the laws are very useful, and they are often very difficult to understand for the non-expert. Very technical, uh, very um, very boring, frankly, in <laughs> in a lot of places. Uh, but give a real insight into some of the sort of real technicalities and details that the the system went uh, into in the, in the Roman world. But there's also more fun stuff. I mean, some of the stories we get from Suetonius and Tacitus where they tell no end of stories that are designed to illuminate the characters of emperors because of the crazy things they did. And often that involves slaves. But of course, with them, there's the real problem that you just don't know how uh, how illustrative mm -hmm. these are of any normality. They're, they're often told because they are abnormal. Uh, they're not mm -hmm. stories of what normally happened. And then I also try to incorporate some more um, sort of off the wall stuff, really, trying to look at some of the psychological insights, if you like. Uh, and there, I, uh, I mean, one source I've always found very useful is Artemidorus's mm -hmm. uh, book on the interpretation of dreams, which I think gives a real sense of how how differently the Romans understand uh, slavery. And I mean, if you don't mind, I'll give you one example of that, uh, which there's this, uh, which I use in the book. Uh, a, a slave owner dreams that uh, he is uh, he has sex with one of his slave girls. Now he is worried because he interprets this not as you know, he fancies his slave girl, which as all good Freudians we would interpret <laughs> the dream as saying. He sees it as being uh, predicting that either he will end up as a slave or even more worrying for him that his children or his descendants will uh, end up as slaves. And he goes to Artemidorus, the dream interpreter, and says, you know, what's this dream mean? And Artemidorus just says, you know, relax, chill out. All it means is that you are going to derive pleasure from your assets. 
<laughs> it's kind of it's not moral, it's not sexual, it's just a pure kind of functional relationship. And I think that is the kind of thing I've used to highlight the real psychological difference between uh, us and the Roman slave owner. Yeah, so that really is a very dramatic difference, right? It is, a, like I said, purely functional. Um, you know, and I wanted to touch upon, you, you mentioned before how this is not problematic in the way it might seem to be for us, you know, the, this, the, the problem of owning their human being. And of course, the, the Greeks did, or at least Aristotle did, theorize briefly upon the, the origins and the nature of slavery. And he says that some people, for which read, of course, barbarians, non-Greeks, are natural slaves, not fitted for their own direction. Um, do we see any speculation on these terms in Roman thought or even in, even in Roman law, any attempt to define the people who are slaves, that just being a, a circumstance they've fallen into? I think the Greeks had a harder view of the divide between uh, free and uh, slave. Um, and, and Aristotle, as you say, gives a very sort of uh, profound uh, expression of that. Um, and and the Romans do have some element of that, partly because they just inherit so many things from the Greeks that they adopt some of the same attitudes. And you do find it in things like the Roman law, where I mean, in a shocking thing for us, it was standard practice that if a slave gave testimony in a court, uh, they would have to do so under torture because they were just thought to be incapable of telling the truth, that you could never believe anything they said, particularly if their own uh, master was involved. So the Romans definitely do have some aspect of that, but in many ways their attitude towards slavery is a bit more contradictory, really, because, of course, they also free many slaves in a way that the, uh, the Athenians and Greeks generally did not. And once they were free, they could be assimilated. So a free slave could become a Roman citizen. Uh, and whilst they couldn't stand for the highest office, they effectively acquired all the rights of citizenship and their children became full citizens. So in a way, they it was impossible for the Romans to say, on the one hand, yes, you're naturally slaves, but on the other hand, say, well, once we've freed you, actually, you're, it's fine for you to be citizens. So uh, I think they have a more, uh, slightly more practical, possibly more generous view of slavery uh, than Aristotle did. Hmm. That's very interesting. It's their encoded law, right, and kind of in the nature of their society. Um, so obviously, any kind of number is a, hazardous, is a hazardous enterprise in antiquity. We never know what kind of numbers are involved. It's just a guesswork, uh, educated usually, but guesswork regardless. Um, but do we have any sense, with all those caveats in place, um, of how many slaves there were in the Roman Empire at any given time? What, what, say, percentage of the population is enslaved? Or even in the city of Rome itself? I mean, even just a ballpark estimate of what kind of numbers we're working with here. Yeah, I mean, it is worth emphasising, as you say, that these are sort of ballpark guesses. But um, as a rough sort of estimate, if you look at the empire as a whole, which has a population of, say, 60 million people, probably something like 10, 10, 12, perhaps 15 percent of that population is enslaved. So, you know, that is six to nine uh, million people. It's, uh, it's a pretty large number. But slavery, in a way, reflects empire. And so slaves get sort of drawn into the heart of, of the empire. So if you go into Italy, 
where a lot of slaves are brought back uh, as part of the the kind of booty of war, mm -hmm. uh, the number of slaves increases probably to something like at least 20%, possibly even 25%. And if you go to the city of Rome, it gets even more. As you get to the heart of empire, then you get to a number that perhaps is 30, maybe even 35% of the population are slaves. So it's an extraordinarily high number when you think that the population of, of, of Rome itself was about one million, uh, a huge city by pre-industrial standards, and perhaps a third of that population uh, were slaves. Um, there was a story once that uh, it was proposed in the Senate that slaves should be made to wear a special kind of uniform, a special tunic, so that uh, the Romans would know who they were. But it was objected, you know, they said, look, if, if, if we see how many slaves we actually have around us, you know, we'll never be able to sleep at night. <laughs> um, yeah, right. That really, Literally, a third of people walking the streets are enslaved, almost certainly. Uh, it's really, really remarkable. Um, so... We'll return to the city of Rome briefly, and that's fascinating, the, the, the sheer number of work done by slaves in the city of Rome um, is a remarkable topic. But first, I think that for, at least those of us in the new world, kind of our default picture of slavery is agrarian, you know, kind of the, the plantation model. And of course, the Romans themselves had many, many slaves living on, you know, the, the Latifundia, whatever else, these large estates that often produce what we think of as cash crops, you know, wine, olives, uh, whatever else. Um, so on a large Roman estate, um, what kinds of jobs, just speaking very generally, um, are being performed by slaves? You know, are they different fundamentally from those being done by free laborers? Or how is this organized according to our agricultural manuals um, in your reading? I mean, the agricultural manuals suggest that it was important to give slaves uh, specific jobs in specific areas of expertise, uh, partly because they would then become more involved in it. They would feel that they owned the job. They were they were responsible for what happened. So it was a way of uh, incentivizing them. Uh, but also, of course, it was a way of knowing who to blame if things went uh, went badly. So probably the average slave on a on a, an estate is is working in a more narrow area than a, a free peasant would be, who would having who would have to do all kinds of work. Uh, whatever needed to be done uh, on the farm. Um, so they are involved in animal husbandry, uh, viticulture, you know, which takes very labour intensive, uh, looking after animals out in the grazing flocks, so as, as herdsmen and shepherds, um, but also uh, the, the women slaves are involved in uh, producing the food, mending the clothes, uh, and even slave children are probably involved in helping around, helping out uh, in, in the farmyard, probably just doing some weeding or looking after the chickens, that kind of small, small scale job. Mm -hmm. um, so, right, a, a huge range of tasks, like I said, very, very specialized. Um, and uh, do we have any sense from these manuals of what, say, the, the average day in the life of one of these laborers looked like? I mean, is this, uh, you know, up at dawn, you know, working the entire day and then just, you know, collapsing into bed at night? Or is it a little more measured than that? Or, Well, I think it's undoubtedly the case that they would have been worked hard, uh, but mm -hmm. it was seasonal. Uh, obviously, it's it's an agricultural pattern of work, so it would have been far busier in the summer than in the winter. But they're sleeping in barns, probably, uh, with all grouped together. They'd be up pretty early 
They'd be eating communal meals that would be fairly basic, uh, wheat, olives, uh, perhaps some sort of basic watered down uh, wine to drink. Um, mm. And then they're, they're out working uh, and again, coming back for communal meals. Uh, but there is rest time, particularly in the quieter times of the year. And of course, famously, at, uh, in the run up to uh, the end of the year in the Saturnalia, they would be given uh, a kind of party where at least uh, notionally uh, everything would be turned on its head and the, the, the slave owner would actually sort of serve the slaves uh, at a special dinner and they'd be allowed to uh, have some special food and to drink wine and get a bit tipsy. So there was some fun built into the system, but you can imagine how it would have varied significantly from place to place, uh, depending on what your owner was like. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, well, thanks to like the, the Great Slave Revolt in Sicily in the second century BC, you know, where all these slaves, you know, agricultural slaves revolt against their masters, and it becomes a terrible problem for the Romans. And um, how, or even right. Uh, you know, again, the, the the perils of the system, you think of, you know, Cato advising people to sell off the slaves who are too old to work, you know, it is, right? It's kind of a grim instrumentality uh, to the whole system, to the whole approach to the way they do their work on the farm. And of course, that, those, those slave revolts that you talk about, all really, the three big ones happen in a sort of 60-year period uh, mm -hmm. in the in the late second and early first century BC, culminating, of course, in the, the great Spartacus rebellion of 73 to 71 BC. And that is a time when Rome is making enormous conquests. Uh, and so it is just taking in hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of slaves. And when you have so many slaves, of course, the price of those slaves will have collapsed. Uh, mm -hmm. And when they are, when they're cheap as chips, then the owner has no incentive to look after his assets. He, mm -hmm. he treats them badly, uh, and it's only when they're being treated so badly that these slaves actually thought, well, we're so desperate, we're actually going to be prepared to try and revolt against the Roman regime. And it's very striking that after those revolts, we don't have slave revolts again, mm -hmm. even though the institution is there. And you like to think that that is because by the time of the empire, when Rome is not conquering as much, probably more slaves are born as slaves rather than being uh, conquered and brought in as slaves. Then perhaps the price went up, they're more valuable assets, owners had more of an incentive to treat them, if not well, <laughs> not quite as badly as they had done before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think also of the the gradual increase of at least nominal protections in Roman law for slaves, where you know, owners can't do everything they want, you know, to their slaves. There is um, the sense that you know at least a basic personhood is being protected, but of course, how that's honored in the breach or not, it's probably hard to say. No, but as you say, in the Republican period, uh, I mean, an an owner could do whatever they wanted to their slaves. They could kill them. I mean, just as they could, in theory, kill their children. They had supreme right. power in their household. But uh, under the empire, they acquire certain certain rights. They can appeal to the statue of the emperor for, uh, mm -hmm. for sort of sanctuary. Um, but even then, that was quite a risky business in that their case would be heard before a magistrate. Uh, and if the magistrate upheld their case, then they had to be sold to a new owner. 
which in mm. itself was not without risk. But if the magistrate found against them, uh, they could be condemned to the beast. They could be sent back to their owner for uh, for harsh punishment. So you had to be pretty desperate as a slave, I think, to to risk uh, appealing to the the statue of the emperor. And of course, whether that actually whether these legal uh, um, improvements actually represent any improvement in in reality mm-hmm. is, as you say, very hard to know. It may just kind of codify what was already standard practice that, you know, sure, owners in the old days might have had the power to execute their slaves, but that doesn't mean they did. Uh, it was probably seen as very harsh. Uh, so it may just be that it's a kind of legal expression of what what had become normal in society mm-hmm. anyway. So to turn from these country estates and agrarian slavery to the city of Rome again, with its masses of slaves, you know, hundreds of thousands of slaves, um, what are all these slaves doing? I'm sure there's a vast, enormous range of jobs, but you have a sense of that range. I mean, it is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, there's this famous case of a former prefect of Rome, Padanius Secundus, who mm-hmm. had 400 slaves in his Roman household. Uh, I mean, what would you do with 400 slaves? Uh, I mean, there is a story that our new King Charles has a valet who squeezes the toothpaste on his toothbrush. (laughs) And I've no idea if that is true. I suspect it is. Um, But you would probably have to invent that kind of job to use 400 people. Mm -hmm. So they are engaged in a whole range of things. They're obviously cooking in the kitchens. They're they're waiting at table. But there are more obscure jobs like calling out your guests' names uh, for which you'd obviously want the slave who had a very good memory and a good facial mm-hmm. memory. Um, there are softer jobs, if you like, um, being tutor to the, uh, the the owner's children, perhaps. So you're going from a, a you know a, a wide range across from you know quite educated slaves to those at the bottom of the heap who are emptying out the the sort of sewer pit uh, at the back of the kitchen, uh, you know, or or throwing the wood onto the furnace to keep the bathhouse uh, warm. So it, is a, it could be, it, it was a job that could really be anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of these uh, vast, uh, the columbaria, the kind of these, uh, these cemeteries for slaves, the big, the big aristocratic households, like so the, slaves, the slaves of Livia, for example, the wife of Augustus, where there are thousands of niches you know, in these buildings. You get a sense of just how large these households were. You mentioned also Apennius Secundus, right? These you know four hundred slaves, you know, for a single senator's household. Yeah, right. What well, what are most of those guys doing besides these very minute, specialized jobs? Absolutely, um, and of course, it's mm-hmm. where it's where slavery, uh, as we often think of it, the kind of British American, uh, Caribbean, Southern states model, uh, which was far more about economic exploitation, as you as you mentioned on cash crops. A lot of Roman slavery is, you know, probably about half of it is about domestic showing off. It's about Mm -hmm. just showing off how rich you are. And having slaves really being unproductive was a way of just showing how much money you had to spare. So it's kind of like the complete opposite of what we might imagine that it would be about. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You, you mentioned actually a couple of anecdotes in your, in your book about these slaves that are incredibly expensive. Um, I think it's Marcus Antonius buys a, a pair of twins who aren't actually twins, which cost um, a ruinous amount of money. Um, and how really it is right, the con- uh, conspicuous consumption on a vast scale that you're, you're buying people who are then being shown off so you could afford them. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's like buying, I don't know, a, a Picasso or something like that <laughs> now. I mean, you don't actually buy it because you appreciate it that much or you want to show it to friends necessarily. It's, uh, it's just about showing how rich you are. Yeah. Um, so we mentioned earlier how there are these uh, various legal protections that at least are in theory in place uh, against slaves being completely maltreated all the time, though how effective they are, who knows. But um, when this does not work, um, slaves uh, can be condemned to do terrible fates, whether it's the mines or, most dramatically, the arena. Um, do we have a sense of how well, how often this happens, for one thing, and why this happens? Why slaves end up being sent to the arena as opposed to some other fate? Um, Probably the most common uh, cause is, is running away. Uh, it, mm -hmm. It's clearly a, a real bugbear for slave owners in the Roman world that it's it's quite common uh, for slaves to run away. And you can imagine that in a world of very limited communications, if you were a slave who could get away, get some distance uh, between you and your, your master's household, it might well be possible for you to uh, disappear into the crowd, as it were. Uh, if you got caught, however, uh, you might suffer a range of dreadful punishments uh, if you're lucky, you probably got branded on the face, uh, you know, saying run away, uh, which would stop you from doing it again. Uh, but you could also uh, go before a magistrate and be uh, thrown to the beasts. Uh, now, clearly, it must have happened fairly often, because if you think of the number of uh, gladiatorial you know, contests that are going on in the empire, even if they are a kind of highlight of the social calendar, the execution of criminals was a core part of the entertainment that took place uh, before the, uh, the climax of the gladiatorial fights. So there's clearly enough of these poor slaves being condemned ad bestias, as it's called in, in Latin, uh, for it to have been uh, a core part of so much uh, entertainment. So I suspect it was actually... You know, it's impossible to quantify, but it's something that was certainly not perhaps the ultimate extreme penalty that we might imagine it, it was. Any kind of serious mm -hmm. misdemeanor could result in that. Um, and thinking about just the, the cheapness of a slave's life in Rome, you mentioned before this guy, uh, Pedanius Secundus, um, a senator in the reign of Nero, who had 400 slaves. Um, now, one of those slaves uh, murdered Secundus, um, and then after which um, all 400 slaves, in accordance with a, a law on the books, um, are condemned to death for this one slave's crime. And Hestus records the debate in the Senate about this, and the Senate ends up saying the law should be upheld, all these slaves should die despite their innocence. And there's protests in Rome about this. You know, as the slaves are being left execution, the, 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 the crowd comes up you know, and tries to, to stop this from happening, but it is carried out tragically. I think this this sort of brings up the the moral ambivalence at the heart of slavery, of Roman slavery, that their their people recognized as such by the crowd, at least in this case, but also um, possessions, chattels, whatever, who have to be placed in into their in their place, and whence the law um, ordering their condemnation. And so this this incident um, of Secundus and his slaves being killed, and the, the debate surrounding them. Do you know of anything, any parallels in Roman history, other debates, public debates, about the morality of treating slaves in this very harsh way? Not really. It's surprising how, how rare incidents of master murder are. Um, mm -hmm. And we only have a couple of good examples, one of which is obviously Pedanius. 
I mean, it's a fascinating case, I think, because the law was an ancient law and it just said any slaves under the same roof. Well, I think it was made, you know, when roofs were fairly small. By the time you get to a, a giant sort of palace like Padanius had, well, you know, what hope did those 400 slaves have of, of even knowing that their master was under attack, let alone sort of intervening to help him? So it throws up a whole load of legal issues. And when it come when it come when it comes to the Senate uh, to discuss it, uh, clearly there are two sides. You know, there are many people in the Senate who say, "Look, this is just unfair." So you can see that it's not just that all Romans were kind of brutal about slaves. There are even in the senatorial class, there are many who think this is just naturally unjust. But, you know, the conservative side say, look, if we don't reinforce uh, the old laws, then we'll never be able to sleep at night uh, and they win out. But as you also say, when they're marched out for execution, the ordinary people of Roman, Rome come out and protest and protest violently, uh, yeah, even attacking the Senate House, possibly. Uh, so it's a interesting to think, why did they care so much? I mean, was it just because they too saw it as being naturally unjust? Uh, or, you know, possibly it's because by then so many ordinary Roman citizens would have, you know, either be former slaves or perhaps, you know, granddad had been a slave or they, they know people who are former slaves. They don't see a huge gap between themselves and slaves and so are prepared to actually sort of, you know, try and intervene on their behalf. But of course, you know, it also shows how powerless uh, ordinary people were in that the emperor mm -hmm. just forces it through and all, all 400 of these poor slaves are, are crucified. Um, yeah, well, like you said, there, there's this, there, there is moral debate, but in the end, the, the terrible necessity as they see it of upholding this law uh, prevails. Um, so to turn from that to a somewhat happier topic, um, uh, freedom. You mentioned before how Roman slaves are much more likely than their Greek counterparts to be freed. Uh, but of course, not every slave has an equal opportunity to be uh, freed, to achieve this, you know, the uh, freedom from bondage. And so what are some of the most common paths to freedom for a Roman slave? I think the, 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 the big divide really is between slaves who can develop some kind of relationship with their, with their owner. And that is going to be much more likely uh, to happen in a domestic situation. Agricultural slaves are largely going to be sort of faceless, working in chain gangs, probably with their heads shaved. So it was very difficult for them to ever to come to the notice of their master. It's only really the, the kind of overseers in the estates who are likely to be rewarded uh, if they've delivered good service. Whereas you can imagine in the domestic context, even when there are 400 slaves in, in, the, in the house of the super rich, you know, you're going to, if you're a tutor or if you're work, helping your master get dressed or you're waiting on your master, you're going to see him at, you know, perhaps every day. You're going to be able to have perhaps some conversation uh, with him. If Well, conversation may be too strong <laughs> right. a word, but some sort of interaction with him. Uh, and so... Uh, you may, if you if you deliver years of good service, be rewarded eventually with freedom. Um, it's very common for owners to free slaves in their wills, which in a way is uh, uh, 
sort of typical in that you get a whole <laughs> lifetime, your lifetime, you get good service. And only when you die, do you uh, free your slaves. But there's also plenty of examples of slaves being freed uh, just just as a reward for for good service over a number of years. Um, it's actually very unclear how long uh, a period the average slave, if you like, would work for. Um, uh, there, Cicero likens the first six or seven years of uh, Caesar's dictatorship to a being like a, a period of servitude for the Roman hmm. people. Um, but he's presumably meaning that it's so bad that even six or seven years is is mm -hmm. is enough. And at the other end of the uh, ex, uh, spectrum, Augustus uh, imposes some punishments which are 30 years of servitude without the possibility of being freed. And that mm -hmm. is seen as being extremely severe. So we're left just saying, well, it's somewhere in the middle, 10, 15 years, something like that, if you if you uh, gave good service and you could come to the attention of your of your master. Um, so it was a way that the Romans, I guess, used the possibility of freedom really as a great carrot, as a mm. way of incentivizing and motivating slaves to do what is often not very exciting, you know, menial jobs. Uh, and eventually they can actually then get their freedom. But of course, it's also more than that. It's a way of saying you can, if you show the right attitude, you can become a full member of Roman society, that slavery was more about social mobility uh, than it was, I think, in most later slave societies. Mm -hmm. And there's, of course, this moment, um, a ceremony, you know, where they're actually given, given manumission, whether by their master or by the master's will, um, where a magistrate might you know, formally decree them free. There might be a mock trial, a couple different ways to do it, of course. But I'm fascinated by the the process, the leading up to the the, the granting of freedom, kind of this, this these halfway house years where they know that freedom has been promised to them or they have a good idea that freedom's coming, but they're still formally in servitude. I know that some masters would set their slaves up almost independently as whether shopkeepers, craftsmen, uh, whatever else. Um, and they're performing these jobs, um, whether earning money to buy their own freedom or even thinking in terms of an independent enterprise down the road um, once that freedom finally comes. And it's just uh, right that the, the psychology is so different from you know New World slavery or even Greek slavery um, that there is this right this gray area between you know slavery without hope of reprieve and you know freedom promised. Um, but there's the, this uh, the faint prospect of freedom that leads to so much you know, in the city of Rome itself. Yes, as you say, it, it, it's quite a clever system in that it gives some slaves the opportunity to earn the money that they can use then to buy their own freedom. And then, mm -hmm. of course, from the owner's point of view, he is then getting a capital sum that he can use to just go and buy another slave. And so mm -hmm. the system is kind of self, uh, self-repeating. Uh, so it's also interesting, I think, uh, you mentioned some of these agreements between masters and slaves to, to free them in the future. And mm -hmm. there's a number of these contracts that survive at, at Delphi because people would lodge them in the temple as a because it was a solemn contract. And it's very striking how numbers of them will say, you know, I agree that I'm going to free you in, say, five years' time, but during that time you promise to be a good slave and if I decide to beat you, you let me do it. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like psychologically right. the slave owner, it's kind of like, 
you know, they need to have that kind of physical superiority in a way that I think, you know, strikes us as a bit sick, really. Well, it is, right? This this bizarre combination of it being a contractual a contractual relationship to some degree, where the slave has agency, at least to the degree that they have freedom promised, but at the same time, they're still possession. And so they're subject to this sort of humiliation that no freedman, at least in theory, um, would have tolerated. Absolutely. It's where... But- going from slave to citizen, you know, being free was quite a long drawn out process of sort of humanization from moving, as you say, Mm -hmm. from being a thing to being uh, a human individual, or at least recognized as one uh, by law and society. Right. And of course, the stigma, you know, is, is very slow to fade. You know, the Romans are you know, snobbish or at least, you know, whatever. They're, they're conservative enough to think that once a slave, always a slave to some degree, even if a freedman becomes very powerful. Um, and of course, many freedmen do achieve remarkable success um, as free people. Uh, and I, of course, we always think people, you know, who, who study Latin literature think of, you know, Trimalchio and Petronius' Satyricon. He was a caricature in many ways, a rich Roman's caricature of a freedman. You know, this, uh, you know, incredibly wealthy man who has you know, legions of his own slaves and is sort of trying to pretend to be a wealthy Roman, but simply understand how it's done. And this, I think, is the, the mental image of the freedman um, for an aristocrat like Petronius, whoever he actually is. I'm sorry, you want to say something? I didn't want to interject. No, no, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's, 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 it's laughable how Trimalchio mm-hmm. just, yeah, he gets it all wrong. You know, he's got no mm-hmm. taste. He's vulgar. He's just spending too much money. He's he's just trying to show off when he's got no you know, real understanding of the value of of anything mm-hmm. that he's got. So he's uh, yeah, he is, as you say, a complete caricature. I mean, he's obviously an extreme example, but you 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 get perhaps a. Uh, a better example of how freedmen themselves uh, saw themselves in they, they leave a lot of tombstones uh, mm-hmm. that particularly in the, the wealthier ones who have obviously made it to some extent they've been successful and they love sort of showing themselves on their tombstones you know proudly wearing their toga which only a mm-hmm. Roman citizen could wear and it shows how you know it, they, it really was important to them that psychologically they wanted to assert their individual worth in the face, as you say, of a society that was snobbish and always looked down on them to some extent. Yeah, I know I've read before that um, even uh, something like a majority of our tombstones, or at least the the large figured ones we find around Rome, um, are at least associated with freed people, we think to some degree, because there's this, the drive is much more powerful, I think, um, for a freedman to display himself um, in this this sort of tomb in a prominent place, and it might be for someone who's born free. Um, you know, so I guess to, to, to return to, you know, so Trimalchia is this caricature, right, who kind of reflects these anxieties the Romans have about how a freedman can displace them um, to some degree. Um, what are the factors that allow freedmen like, well, the, the real version of Trimalchio uh, to achieve such wealth and influence? You know, how does a former slave become rich, become powerful? Well, they, they could, as you, as you mentioned earlier, slaves, 
who have been freed, they could effectively become agents for their former owners. So mm-hmm. aristocrats didn't want to get involved in trade or business, not openly, because it was considered vulgar. So they could use uh, their former slaves as as front men uh, to run businesses for them. And the 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 slave, uh, uh, the former slave, would then become uh, could become rich as a result. Now, some of these, uh, Eurysikis is a famous example who obviously made some money uh, in the bread industry and built himself a very fancy uh, tomb that's on the edge of uh, edge of Rome uh, now. Uh, but some of the most successful uh, freedmen were imperial freedmen. So these were slaves who belonged to uh, the emperor. Now, the emperor obviously had tens of thousands of slaves, but the ones who actually worked in his household uh, were his kind of secretaries, if you like. They become particularly important because they are people he can completely trust. You know, mm-hmm. They're not political. They can't become uh, political because they can't, they can't take high office. They've got no kind of background support. You know, they're not from a particular region of the empire generally. You know, they owe everything to the emperor. And so he could rely on them to be loyal to him and not to go around, you know, politicking behind his back in a way that he could never trust senators to do. So these imperial freedmen, some of them become extremely powerful Effectively, they are the emperor's agents, uh, and so they are in control of huge budgets and, of course, have the emperor's backing behind them. That means that they can probably take advantage of all kinds of uh, inefficiencies and improprieties to make uh, some money on the side. Mm-hmm. Right. When things of like Apollos a and Narcissus under Claudius, you know, these free, these freedmen who become the wealthiest men of the empire uh, to some degree. Absolutely. And, and you uh, even have, you have s- slaves who are so rich that they own slaves. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is a slightly no, I, sort of, you know, odd situation. Yeah. It's, it's incredible how slaves, you know, kind of adopt the system so wholeheartedly that they themselves are willing to own slaves for the reason that the Romans themselves, that their masters had as conspicuous, conspicuous consumption. I think uh, Pliny mentions uh, some former slave who owned 4,000 slaves of his own. Um, and so you see again how there was, at least for most of these men, you know, no moral problematic. It was seen just a social relationship that they would take advantage of, you know, when they were suddenly given the chance to do so. Obviously, they felt they had to, to some degree. But I think that, again, highlights one of the, the big real differences between uh, sort of, well, you know, more, more modern slavery uh, and, and Roman slavery, is that even in the sort of 16th, 17th century, there are many people who can see the immorality of what is going mm-hmm. on. There is, from the early days, some moves and calls for abolition, uh, even if it takes you know, uh, a long time for these to be heard. In the ancient world, there's just no sense of that. There's no sense of the institution being questionable, uh, of being morally reprehensible, and there's no sense of kind of class solidarity between the slaves mm-hmm. themselves. In fact, as you say, uh, former slaves who own slaves are notorious of being uh, for being pretty tough owners, almost because mm-hmm. they have a kind of psychological need to take it out on the slaves that they then own. Right, you know, kind of that, again, that assuming the master's role, you know, in sort of almost this, this caricature from the perspective. Um, 
Yeah, it is. It's so embedded, um, you know, so naturalized in their society that there is no debate, or as far as we can tell, almost no debate. You know, even the most humane Romans, you know, something like a Seneca, will, you know, they'll say, or a Pliny the Younger, for example, you know, will say, treat them kindly, but never consider the fact that you could do away with it entirely. It's just part of their mental furniture. Absolutely. So it's only in the in the in the very late empire that even uh, we get a Christian source that uh, mm-hmm. attacks it as an institution. Uh, that the Christians may have had a slightly softer attitude towards slavery in some regards, particularly uh, in regards of the sort of sexual exploitation of slaves mm-hmm. or the uh, mistreatment of slave families, uh, but. As an institution, it still doesn't occur to Christians to question it. Uh, it's just a question of how you, how rigorously you interpret the existing laws. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just it's, a, it's the way of the world, you know, and that that's all there is to it. Absolutely. Um, um, well, this is fascinating, and I think we could talk, you know, for twice as long about the aspects of Roman slavery. But um, I won't take up so much of your day. Um, so, Dr. Toner, thank you so much um, for sharing um, all these insights with us, and uh, to everyone listening, um, um, "How to Manage Your Slaves" um, by Marcus Adonius Falks with Jerry Toner um, is a, a very fun and very insightful um, exploration of Roman slavery. So, I encourage you to check it out. Um, And so again, Dr. Turner, thank you very much. Thanks you all for listening. And to everyone, uh, have a great day.